One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. They're chanting, Mashur is number one. An ecstatic Egyptian crew on a tugboat named Mashur are filming themselves as they leap for joy. They've just managed to help free the most famous cargo ship in the world, the Ever Given, which was stuck in the Suez Canal for almost a week. With the world watching, it's a triumph for them accompanied by a global sigh of relief. But how did one boat bring international trade to a temporary standstill? 300 ships at one point were just waiting to try and cross through the canal. And what does this episode tell us about globalisation? Costs about $10 billion a day in trade. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the Suez Canal. What happened when a ship got stuck? So, my name is Louise Callahan, and I'm the Middle East correspondent for The Sunday Times. Last Tuesday, Louise, who lives in Turkey, was researching a story when something caught her eye. So I was at home in Istanbul and I was working on a completely different story about the Iranian government restricting access to the internet. So I was really like in that headspace, I was really into it. And then I saw it on, on Twitter, it flashed up, this boat had got stuck in the Suez Canal. And I just thought that there was no way that it was going to last more than a few hours. So I kind of kept going with my other story. And then by the end of the day, the boat was still there. And that's when it started getting kind of alarming. A container ship has blocked the Suez Canal. The vessel ran aground yesterday morning, since when tugs have been trying to refloat it. And then by the next morning, it was still there. At the beginning, it really wasn't clear how much of a huge deal this was. It's an incredibly kind of well-run and well-observed waterway. So you just kind of assumed it would get cleared away, but no. And what do we know about the boat itself? Because I understand it's sort of got a very international heritage. This ship really is just a kind of example of the amazing level of globalisation that happens within the kind of maritime world. So the owner is Japanese, the owner of the ship. It was sailing under a Panamanian flag. The ship management company is headquartered in Hamburg and all the sailors on board were Indian, and the pilots on board would have been Egyptian. So it's this real kind of mix of different cultures, different nationalities, all on board the ship full of like mainly Chinese goods, 
which was heading to Rotterdam and then on to Felixstowe in Suffolk. It's a great metaphor for globalisation. Yeah, and also the, the perils of globalisation <laughs> and of putting all your eggs into, well, 12% of the world's shipping trade into one quite thin canal. It was the boat that launched a thousand internet memes. The whole world seemed to watch as this enormous cargo ship with places to go was suddenly completely stuck. It could have been a metaphor for lockdown. Louise, tell us about the moment it ran aground. Basically, at 7.30am last Tuesday, something happened on board the Ever Given, which is this huge, huge container ship which was going up the Suez Canal. I mean, when I say it's huge, it's really just a lot bigger than any normal person would think that ships are. Give us a sense of scale, yeah. <laughs> but I just I just had no idea that there were ships this big. It's a quarter of a mile long. This very, very, very sage and storied maritime expert that I interviewed described it as a block of flats on its side. I mean, it's really big. <laughs> and not just any old block of flats. I mean, I heard it's the size of the Empire State Building. Yeah, 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 it is. But it, it's, it's enormous. Also, but it's not, also, it's not only long, but it's also really, really high. Mm. I mean, that's the other thing. You know, if you look at it from its side, it doesn't look like a ship. It just It's just this like huge mass of containers that are stacked really, really, really high. It's, it's a real feat of engineering in the first place to even get something that big and make it float on the water. How much cargo was it carrying? The ship, with all its cargo, weighed about 220,000 tonnes. Oh, wow. It can carry enough cargo to fill Harrods three times over. One ship. One ship. It's just an amazing sight. This channel, which is just so incredibly important to to shipping across the world, just blocked by this one huge boat. The bow was in Asia and the stern was in Africa. And like the, the physics of it were just amazing. The bow was like ploughed really hard into this kind of sandbank. The, the canal is deeper in the middle and shallower on the sides. Mm. The reason why both sides got stuck in was that it went so far over to each side, both to, to port and to starboard. It was jammed in really, really tight into those sandbanks on either side. There were some extraordinary maps that started to come out to sort of show the effect that it was having on, on shipping across the world, really. But tell me, what was it like for some of the boats nearby who were waiting to get through the Suez Canal? So I spoke to this guy called Ahmad Smaida. Hello, Louis. I'm good, I'm good. And you? Yeah, good, thank you. Thank he you was so a Lebanese second officer on board a ship called the Tulip, which was uh, about 60 nautical miles north of the Ever Given when it, when it ran aground. And we heard on the VHF that there is one big ship, but one huge uh, had a failure in the engine and had a blackout. It was 34 degrees last week. Life on board his ship, just waiting to go through the canal, was just miserable. Our situation here is stressful, uh, very stressful. Mm-hmm. I told you we have animals, live yeah. animals, a live guard, but yes. The ship that he was on was carrying livestock bound for Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and we are going to Saudi Arabia to the port of Jeddah. And so when were um, you supposed to arrive in Jeddah? 
they were supposed to arrive yesterday. <laughs> and then so they had 9,000 heads of sheep and 150 bulls on board in the sweltering heat. And some of the livestock were dying. Oh. It was just unbelievably grim. This a big, a big problem for us because uh, you need to supply them with water. Uh, you need to supply them with, uh, with the fodder. If you look at the uh, the maps that are available online, last week you can see this like huge bottleneck building up. 300 ships at one point were just waiting to try and cross through the canal. So, yeah, the people that I spoke to who were on board, who were on board those ships were just, you know, incredibly bored, worried as well. Their wages, their livelihoods depend on them being able to continue to do this job. And if they're going to be stuck in the Suez Canal, that means they're not making money that they can send home to their families. How far away were boats being impacted? After it became clear that the boat was going to be stuck in there for a while, a number of ships who had been waiting at the at the entrance to the canal, they decided to cut their losses and carry on along a different route. So for some of them, that meant going past the Cape of Good Hope instead of going through the canal. So literally circumnavigating Africa, which is a you know a huge cost and it takes a really long time. It adds about a week to a journey. That is how serious it became. That actually included the Ever Greet, which is the Ever Given's sister ship. When the ship was still stuck there around this weekend, the Ever Greet was merrily making its way past the southern coast of Sri Lanka, having given up on trying to traverse the Suez Canal. Do we now know what exactly had happened? That is something that we're going to be finding out over the next weeks and months. There's going to be an investigation. On board every ship, there's a voice data recorder, which is kind of like a like a black box in an aeroplane, hmm. which collects all the information. At the point where that is investigated and that is published, then we're going to know more about what happened. We still don't know exactly what happened, but there are two main theories. The first is the one that's uh, been pushed out by the ship management company. And they're basically saying that as the Ever Given was going up the Suez Canal, there was a sudden gust of wind and that this gust of wind blew it off course and caused it to get, to get stuck in the bank. And the other theory about what happened is that there was what sailors called a blackout, that there was an engine failure. So an engine failure on board the ship would have basically made this huge, huge, huge boat really, really difficult to control for even for sort of 10 seconds before the emergency processes kicked back in. During that time, it could have meant that because the ship is so incredibly big, it could have been blown off course and that would have made it crash into the bank on the side. What are the consequences? You know, what now for for the company who owns the ship for a start? It slightly depends on the investigation. So if it was a sudden strong gust of wind that blew it off course, then, you know, it's a force of nature and and then it wasn't anyone's fault. On the other hand, if it was found to have been caused by human error, then that opens a whole other range of possible issues for the shipping company, whether that's insurance payouts or payouts for lost wages or, or that kind of thing. Good news from the Suez Canal. That giant ship that was blocking it for nearly a week has been freed. It took 13 tugs and the removal of tens of thousands of tonnes of sand. I mean, the other thing I think that sort of really drew people in was just, you know, you've described how it was lodged across across the canal and sort of on both sides in the sandbanks. How on earth did they go about 
dislodging it because we all saw the images of this tiny digger <laughs> and it seemed to be this great David and Goliath battle. Tell us how they, how they managed it. So a lot of it, from what I gather, was down to dredging. So the slightly unglamorous sounding thing was actually really, really important. I mean, basically what they do, they attempted to refloat it by blasting away large amounts of mud and sand. And then that kind of creates a pool around the ship, which then allows it to refloat. The other thing was that round about this weekend and Monday, there was a monthly high tide. Ah. The waters rose about 18 inches compared to their usual level. And, and the other really important thing as well was that they had tugboats uh, attached to the sides of the ship and that they pulled in various ways and, and then that led to the ship being dislodged. When I spoke to a number of you know, world-renowned salvaging experts over the weekend, the general consensus was that it might take weeks to free. So actually, this was a great success. So this is a story with a happy ending for now, after the Ever Given was finally freed this Monday. But the Suez Canal has a long and often contentious history. Originally built by the French in the mid-19th century, by cutting through Egypt, the canal allowed boats to go from the Indian Ocean via the Red Sea through this slither of Egypt and straight up into the Mediterranean, bypassing the long route around Africa to reach Europe. For Britain, with its empire, this route was vital. After a number of years then, British companies invested a huge amount and the canal became a, a joint British-French operation. A huge amount of world trade began to pass through there. And then in 1956, the Suez Crisis began. The Suez Canal, never far from the news in its 87 years of history, hits the headlines like a bombshell. In July 1956, the Suez Canal was nationalised by Egypt, wresting control from colonial hands. For neighbouring Israel which already had a tense relationship with the Egyptians, this was an opportunity. Israel invaded Egypt in order to return control of the canal to European powers and to remove the powerful Egyptian president, Gamal Abdel Nasser. Now Nasser tears the agreement up. The canal, he says, is nationalised forthwith. Britain and France sent in troops to support Israel, but, humiliatingly, had to back down after pressure from the United States, the Soviet Union and the United Nations. No sooner had the last British soldier gone than Nasser triumphantly hoisted the Egyptian flag over the canal's own base. For many, the Suez Crisis was a turning point. It was such a blow to Britain's reputation and role on the world stage that it left the sense of a country in decline. I mean, it was just enormously humiliating. Britain and France came out of it looking very weak, faded colonial powers that could no longer hold on to what they saw as their possessions. But to understand the events of the last week, we really need to go back to 1967, 11 years after the Suez Crisis, when the canal was again fiercely contested. On the eve of the Six-Day War with Israel, the Egyptian president, Gamal Abdel Nasser, closed the canal. It would remain shut for eight years, completely altering international trade. Ships now had to travel around the Cape of Good Hope, making journeys longer and much more expensive. 
As a result of that, one expert that I spoke to said that it sparked this frenzy of shipbuilding because a lot of ships then had to go around South Africa. So that meant, just by kind of simple economics, boats became bigger because they wanted to fit more stuff on them. Sending one boat is always going to be cheaper than sending two boats. But since then, the canal has been expanded a number of times, most recently in 2015. The problem is not really that the canal is too small from, from all the experts that I've spoken to. The question will be more uh, about what exactly was it that went wrong this time and how can it be avoided again? In a moment, we'll look at how the Ever Given, one ship in a narrow canal, managed to impact global trade and move financial markets. Get to the heart of the story every day Subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times online and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together, because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I started to see it come through on the websites and things and sort of thought, oh, that looks interesting. And then you start to realise, oh, look, it's still stuck. (laughs) Um, And then it's still stuck and it's going on for quite a few days. So then um, you start to see reports coming in from analysts and start to think that looks quite fascinating. That's Jill Trenor, the city editor at the Sunday Times. I suppose the thing about the Suez Canal is you suddenly start to realise what an important element it is in in world trade. I suppose we're so used to things sort of moving around the globe without thinking about it too hard. You instantly start to realise what an important sort of route it is to get trade quickly through the middle of the globe, really. Tell us a bit about how that works. I mean, what sort of trade is passing through? Why is it so key to global markets? I think it's worth thinking about the ever given. So we know that IKEA, for instance, has said it had 110 containers that were trying to make uh, their way through the channel. Um, we've also got... Who doesn't need IKEA? <laughs> I was I was taken by an interview, actually, that was on the BBC, where Dave Hinton, who runs a timber company, was explaining how he'd actually sent some oak panels over to China to be lacquered and to come back again. And you kind of think that tells you quite a lot about the way we operate now. You know, we move things around the globe to get things done. How much of the global trade markets would have been affected by this? I mean, is it, is it also oil? Is it core materials? It's certainly the case that oil and other forms of energy pass through there. Before I came to speak to you, I had a chat with Michelle Brockman, who's at Lloyd's List, which is the kind of encyclopedia for the whole shipping industry. And on that point about what is coming through the canal, there are some quite interesting points you made to me, is that since the canal was was freed up again, 65 ships have gone through. There are still 307 waiting. This was earlier on on Wednesday. But one point you made to me is that she had noticed that, the, that more of what she called box ships are being freed up 
she means container ships like the ones that were on the ever given rather than the ones carrying oil and other items and i think we can surmise from that that the oil was less urgent at this moment in time. I mean, the oil price definitely moved up at one point last week and then started to come back. But people who were watching this closely are, are sort of just cautioning, saying we might see the knock-on impact for just a little while yet. So actually, the ship's moved, we've all cheered, but it's not quite over. No, I don't think so. I mean, apparently about 50 ships a day would normally get through there. I don't know precisely how many are going through there at the moment, but that gives you an indication of, of the fact there is going to be a bit of a delay for a while. Do we sort of have a, a rough idea of how much this has cost sort of trade in general on a daily basis? Well, there are plenty of estimates about that. And the one that um, I've seen is that it costs about $10 billion a day in trade. And people will be busy working that out and, and, and waiting to see what the sort of longer term impact is as a result of that sort of seven day delay. And then we'll be trying to we'll be watching all the trade figures and things to try and work out what the knock on impact has been. It could be a little while, I think, before we see the total impact of it. Can you sort of outline a bit of that and explain why this one ship could become so important? I think if we take a step back for a second or two, one of the things that started to become apparent this time last year, actually, as the COVID situation arose, we started to realise about just how much we rely on globalisation for so many of the things that we use in our homes every day and how much we rely on things moving very smoothly and quickly around the globe. So as a result of the pandemic, we had people telling us about containers not being in places you might expect them to be. And then on top of that, we've also had Brexit, which has caused different problems by slowing down trade. I think at the start of the year, goods coming in and out of Britain were subject perhaps to tariffs and other items that they might not have been in the past. So it's made people think much more about the globalisation of markets. It was a seven-day delay in terms of the ship itself, but do we have any idea of how long it'll take to clear the backlog? No, I mean... And what's also interesting is if you are one of the boats who had made a decision to actually not wait and to make the detour down the bottom of, of Africa and back round, there are estimates that that could take as long as 10 days to add to a journey. You might be moving, but you're subject to delay. And how costly is that? Right. So Refinitiv, the analysts of Refinitiv think that it adds, for a large container vessel, at least $400,000 in terms of transport costs for each of these ships. Wow. Um, and that is why, I mean, there have some people speculating that maybe it could have an impact on the overall level of inflation, but I'm, I'm not sure that we're at a point yet where that uh, is going to become apparent. Gosh, that's interesting. So those costs will get passed on through the goods that are being stocked on those ships? Possibly. I guess it depends how long it goes on and how much, I mean... Are we saying IKEA furniture is about to become a lot more expensive? Oh, now I don't want to be involved in that debate. <laughs> no, step away. Um, I'm stepping away from that one. <laughs> I mean, does it at least mean that we'll we'll probably have to wait a bit longer to get items from places like IKEA if they've been stuck for a while? It feels as if it should, shouldn't it? I mean, it's mm. difficult to know, I guess, about how much stockpiling goes on with suppliers and whether or not they're sort of just frantically stocking things up and rather waiting for it to arrive and immediately ship it out. But I guess we'll find out in the coming days if that's the case. And tell me a bit about that, because that's something we've become aware of, you know, through Brexit and then through Covid too. How do just-in-time supply chains work? Brexit has highlighted this, hasn't it? One of the things mm. that we've heard car manufacturers talk about is how they move bits of 
bits to make cars in into Britain and then move them out again to get them fitted out to do something else and then move them back into Britain to sell them. And that's certainly how just-in-time supply chain works. The idea is that we, we live in this global environment. You can bring things in quickly when you need them. That's cheaper because you're not having to buy warehouse space to store it. Um, you can make everything work nice and smoothly. But of course, as we discovered through COVID, it doesn't take that long for a bit of a glitch in the supply chain for that whole process to fall down or at least be subject to the possibility of falling down. For companies, though, having seen how easy it is for their trade routes to be blocked by one ship in the Suez Canal, will they be changing the way they they do things? Will they be taking a a broader look at how they do this in the future? Do you know, this is really interesting, I think. When supply chain started to be hit by COVID, this was a big debate that raged about the fact that we had spent so much of our time living in an environment where everything was just in time. You know, things arrived, they moved out, then they went back again. And there was lots of debate about the fact that there needed to be more resilience in supply chains. I think we're waiting to see the evidence of that and to see whether or not companies will indeed start to hold on to more stocks. Because remember, that in itself builds up the cost of what they're doing. So companies will be weighing up. Is it worth me holding extra stock, building up extra cost, but still being allowed to supply my customers if something goes wrong in the future? And I think, you know, I think we're there. I think we're waiting to see what happens with that, what the long term impact will be, not just about this, but about COVID in general. Is it too risky in the modern world to rely on one stretch of water for so much global trade? A lot of the experts I spoke to said that it wasn't really that that was the issue. It was the level of infrastructure available to fix problems in case they go wrong. That's Louise Callahan again. You know, I, like I think a lot of other people around the world, is really surprised about how much trade it is that goes through that tiny canal. And when you look at it, it is really small. So you see really how how vulnerable global trade can be. But I think it does, again, ignite this debate about the way that we all live. We expect our Amazon deliveries to come straight away. I'm sure there will be loads of things on the Ever Given that no doubt were waiting to be delivered to somebody's home eventually. It just seems so odd that we can be in a situation where one boat brings global trade to a standstill. It's a real sign of how vulnerable this entire system is and and how quickly things can go wrong that you never even imagined were a really big risk. If you think about the Suez Canal, it was built, wasn't it, between 1859 and 1869. Even then, there was a desperate desire to move goods between Asia and Europe. The desire for global trade has been driving economies and countries for decades, centuries, I guess. Yes, that desire for globalisation has been with us for some time. But it's clearly in this more recent time where we're not just talking about moving raw goods. We're talking about now moving manufactured items, trainers and other things that are made in in China and the Pearl River Delta that are now part of our everyday life. And Jill, I imagine a few weeks ago, you wouldn't have thought the Suez Canal and the ships that passed through it would have been a big part of your reporting life. But having followed this so closely over the last week, what most surprised you about this story? The thing that's most fascinating about it, it does make you stop to think about where goods come from and then about how they get to us. And the fact that it's that one ship can kind of get stuck and, and sort of grab all of our attention does make you stop and reflect perhaps 
on our expectations that things will arrive on our doorstep very quickly and when we want them. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Louise Callahan, The Sunday Times Middle East correspondent, and Jill Trinor, the city editor for The Sunday Times. You can read more of Louise and Jill's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer today was Will Rowe. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Palama Kaufman. If there's a story you'd like us to look into, or if you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, or perhaps you've had an extraordinary lockdown, has it changed your life for good? If so, please do get in touch. Send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. <laughs>